Space. The final frontier. Final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that. Start taking it all for granted. The suits, the ships, the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void. But the void is always waiting. Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 11 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and in this special 4th of July episode, we're comparing and contrasting two empires, uh, one of which has its birthday today, and their television products. So it's the USA's Star Trek, of course, and the UK's Doctor Who, and to discuss this with me is American superfan... Corey Drew. Hi, Corey. Hey, Siskoid. How's it going? So you're a fan of both programs? I am. A lifelong fan of both programs. As am I. And we're going to try to compare and contrast different uh, elements of it, mostly due to philosophy. I mean, obviously, one is about spaceships and the other one's about the time machine <laughs> in broad strokes. But True, true. Yeah, but we'll get into more of the, the philosophical elements and basically how your country in this, your the United States. My country? I'm responsible for this country now. I'm sorry. Yes, you are. Don't worry. I'm responsible for the entire Commonwealth. I'm not British, but Canada is part of the Commonwealth. I'll be representing the UK portion of this in a sense, you know, uh, and we'll see how those two imperial entities, how that translates into those two science fiction programs that have both, you know, hit the 50 year mark. You know, it makes sense to compare them. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we can go any further, you've got to take the quiz that every guest has to date so that people out there know who they're dealing with. If you're ready, what does Star Trek mean to you? It's a huge part of my ideology. Uh, at its core, it's optimistic. And I mean, that's well-trod ground by people. You know, everybody says that about Star Trek. But for me, that's the truth. Uh, uh, it, it really sits very firmly in my heart as being the sort of optimistic future. So when I'm feeling pessimistic about, say, world events or my life or, you know, anything in general, like, it's nice to think that someone at some point in history has envisioned this idea of this future where humanity is of value to the rest of the universe, which, uh, as, you know, somebody who reads, like, say, for instance, a lot of H.P. Lovecraft, one feels like maybe humanity doesn't offer up that much hope for the universe. But Star Trek gives us an alternate view of that, and uh, as somebody who occasionally, you know, needs that, uh, it's very helpful in that respect. What's your favorite show or version of the show? Uh, ironically, the least optimistic version, Deep Space Nine, um, <laughs> is is my f is my favorite version. Um, 
that's actually that's really hard to say. Like I, I would say that to me, Deep Space Nine is the best version of Star Trek in just the sheer sitting down to watch episodes. They are both episodic and serialized, and which you know, as a Doctor Who fan, it's sort of a sweet spot for me. But honestly, the ones that give me the warm fuzzies, like I feel like I'm home, it's gonna be the early middle seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. Who's your favorite character in the whole lot? Spock. He is absolutely my favorite character. He goes across virtually every iteration of Star Trek, at least in certainly an influence, if not an actual presence. And he's the sort of, in a strange way, he's the emotional center of the Star Trek universe, which I, you know, is ironic given his capacity for emotion but yeah spock you're right there's a spock in every series a sort of spock in every series uh yeah he's very much part of that template and who's your or what is your favorite alien species in the star trek universe oh that's that's rough <laughs> boy uh, there's so many cool ones you know i have this weird soft spot for the Betazoids, which is like, you know, probably an uncommon answer to this question, I'm guessing. It's the second time I've heard it. Is it so? Okay, good. Yeah, like I have, I, I have this weird, uh, you know, because they're like, I don't know, they're, they're something very, all the ones that they've put on screen, with the exception of the most prominent one, are just really kind of colorful characters. Some of them are a little bit sinister. Actually, almost all of them are a little bit sinister. And I kind of like that idea of this sort of race of telepaths or, you know, empaths, depending on their heritage, wandering the universe and sort of being a little, little nefarious from time to time. I like that. I dig it. Cloister bells. That can only mean one thing. You have to go back in time and take the survey again. But this time, you have to do it with Doctor Who. Oh. So what does Doctor Who mean to you? Uh, Doctor Who is the single show that has been with me my entire life. Ever since I can remember watching television, uh, Doctor Who has been a part of it. It is when I'm my happiest television-watching self is when I'm watching Doctor Who. I have Doctor Who tattoos. The idea that someone, an individual, would care enough about the peoples of the universe, uh, to quote Anthony Ainley, to go about and just, you know, play havoc with <laughs> the laws of physics and space and time and history and, and everything, uh, to make a better life for total strangers is just such an incredible idea to me. He was a hero for me from the get-go. And the fact that he always brought younger people along with him really sort of grabbed me early on. So, you know, the idea that I could be a companion in the TARDIS, you know. Right. I never had this uh, notion of being a Time Lord, but being a companion was accessible. It was an entry-level position, you know. So <laughs> anybody could have it, you know. And, and over the years, almost anybody has. And, and if you look into the Expanded Universe stuff, he's even had a Penguin sidekick, so... If a penguin can do it, why can't I? It looks like a lot less training than uh, Starfleet. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't imagine he, you know, you have to stand in a straight line and have him yell at you for any a length of time to, uh, to join the TARDIS crew. Which is your favorite Doctor or era? Oh, that's always such a hard question. It sort of goes back to what I was saying about, you know, I think there is there are the, the best ones, and then there are the ones that give me the warm fuzzies. And... You know, some would argue that maybe in this case they're both the same thing. But uh, Peter Davison is the dark doctor who owns my hearts. 
he will always be my doc. He was the first regeneration I saw because, of course, my first doctor was Tom Baker because it was back in the very early 80s. And then, uh, you know, here, at least where I am, we got it sort of a year or two after the rest of the world <laughs> did. So the first doctor I saw regenerate was Tom Baker, and I saw him regenerate into Peter Davison. And as a kid, Peter Davison was much less alien. I think than Tom Baker, much less, uh, much more approachable. And he just kind of gave me this idea that, uh, you know, that the doctor could be your big brother as well as your surly uncle. And if we're going to use the same questions and say, who's your favorite character? Let's, let's not use the doctor here, but the favorite companion. Uh, Sarah Jane Smith. Classic. <laughs> She's, she is my, you know, hero in a lot of ways. Like she was just such a great companion and, and the fact that she was brought in to new Doctor Who in such a, a big way. They literally, they expanded her character and the idea of her character and what her character meant to the Doctor when they introduced her into New Who. And it just reinvigorated my, my uh, adoration for her. And those silly pink striped overalls. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, what is it called? Andy Pandy outfit. Yeah, that's right. What about alien species? What's your favorite? Well, you know, um, I guess the, uh, the Ood. the Ood. I was going to say the Time Lords. I was going to say the Time Lords because, you know, that, that sort of makes the most sense. But right in, right in the last minute, the Ood just swept in and just took over. Uh, they they break my heart every time I see them. I just adore them. No Daleks or Cybermen for you? No, I don't think so. I mean, the Daleks, I've had darn near 40 years to to have had fun with the Daleks, and uh, I'm good without them for a little while. So maybe if you had asked me in 1989, I might have said Daleks, just after having seen, like, you know, Remembrance of the Daleks or something. <laughs> but no, the Ood. Yeah, I'm surprised by that, too. Well, it's a fun answer. All right, so now we know who Corey Drew is. Let's just get into this topic, Trek versus who. And, I mean, we're saying versus, but it's just a way to compare them. We're not going to answer anything to the, the question of which is better. I don't think that's part of the uh, equation at all. No, I agree. I think that so much of uh, fandom and geekdom is spent trying to parse out, you know, what is superior. And I, I don't think that that's a necessary question to this endeavor. It really isn't. And especially if we're Whovians, we have that within our own fandom where people will argue against new who if they like classic who or vice versa or yeah, or, or exactly. fight over eras yeah we don't do that we're real super fans right. the whole thing that's right mr wolf the enterprise crew currently includes representatives from 13 planets they each have their individual beliefs and values and i respect them all but they have all chosen to serve starfleet if anyone cannot perform his or her duty because of the demands of their society they should resign among all the varied wonders of the universe, there's nothing so firmly clamshut as the military mind. So the first topic we've uh, selected to develop is the establishment versus the anti-establishment. What do we mean by this? Well, obviously, when we look at Star Trek, it was born in an era of... I mean, Roddenberry was an anti-conformist in a way, and the show was progressive in many ways. And yet, it presented characters that were part of the establishment. People the space hippies thought were square. On the other side of the uh, the pond is Doctor Who, about an aristocrat gallivanting around the universe, a member of the establishment who rejects that establishment and becomes this insolent uh, roustabout, fostering revolution everywhere he goes. How do we look at both these shows in terms of what they represent? Are they about authority or are they about fighting authority? I would say that Star Trek 
comes down pretty firmly in the liberal authoritarian camp. Uh, it's, it's society is open, but quite rigid in its, you know, expectations, uh, even down to the sort of clothing that the people wear, you know, sort of throughout. Now, admittedly, the window uh, into the Star Trek universe that we get is a, a military one. So you're, you're bound to get uh, a certain healthy amount of that. Uh, whereas with Doctor Who, you know, you have this, I don't think it's unfair to call him a libertine, just sort of like you were saying earlier, going about the universe and, and fostering it, at the very least revolution, uh, sometimes even more <laughs> than revolution. Somebody who is, you know, from an actual uh, very authoritarian uh, legacy, recognizing the, the ills of that and uh, trying to set that right everywhere he goes. So for, for me, you know, it, the question of that, you know, Doctor Who is very much the sort of liberty show and uh star trek is very much the sort of authority show like trust us we know what we're doing and doctor who is no one knows what they're doing <laughs> do what needs to be done <laughs> uh so i mean that's that's where i fall on this particular spectrum at least that's that's my definitions with there i wonder how being the product of a particular country affects how we can look at that show i, I understand that the uk has an aristocracy one of the few surviving aristocracies in the western world And the idea that this country colonized a lot of other countries. And so colonialism is part of the British consciousness. And during the 60s and 70s, the colonies they still had were being left to their own devices. Uh, Canada became a, its own democracy Uh, much earlier, a uh, hundred years earlier or so, but even less than that. But, you know, so you've got the doctor going to colonies. And so there's always sort of informing how Britain is treating its colonies for good or ill. And so when you're fostering revolution, it's like it's like the doctor is perhaps exercising the, the national guilt in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not not being a, a citizen of the UK or even relative to it you know i i could definitely see that as an in for people as a, a baseline as it were to the music of doctor who like just a, a the idea that this very recognizable archetype the sort of the oscar wildean kind of member of the aristocracy who is sort of issues its basic values i can see how that would be something that easily grabs uh, the british public because it's like i say it's an archetype they recognize and agreed 100 especially given the origin of the show mm. uh, it was produced by a canadian and a woman correct Uh, and it was um, directed by someone of uh, Middle Eastern descent. So if there are th three people <laughs> who may have a point of view on that front, those three people seem likely to me to, be, <laughs> to have a point of view that, that might be like, let's tell this story. And they're in to the rest of the British public was this you know, very recognizable, very British archetype to help them sort of exercise those those demons, as it were. How does Star Trek compare if we turn the mirror around? and? Well, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I feel like with Roddenberry in particular and that generation in general, you have a generation of people who were, you know, post-Second World War 
who kind of had this moment, you know, a Tom Brokaw referred to them as the greatest generation, had this moment where, you know, at least the national tale that we tell ourselves is that, you know, the, the allied powers saved the world and that the Americans were the probably the foremost in terms of military power at any rate in the allied powers. So in, in America, I know with my family that's in that age, there was a very real sense that our military and our social structure really saved the planet. And Star Trek reflects that, I think, in a way that perhaps that's where that optimism comes from, that, that idea that, no, we can do good things in the world, and in Star Trek's case, in the universe. And it's through these well-established uh, social norms, and uh, in, in Star Trek's case, our military, that we are able to do that. So, you know, I feel like that's the positive spin on it. The negative spin would be this generation just sort of never got used to the fact that they weren't in the army anymore. Uh, and their nostalgia for that was sort of all encompassing in a lot of respects. And, and, and if you look at the pop culture of the time, you do see that sort of played out. One of my favorite movies of all times, which uh, one of your fellow podcasters, Rob Kelly, also adores his White Christmas. And, and that movie is basically the nostalgia for having been in the Second World War. And uh, not too long after that film came out, a decade anyway, um, you know, Star Trek emerged. But you can definitely see a through line in American pop culture. The idea that when we are our best is when we are a military force engaged in a, a righteous struggle. And I think that that continues today to this, to some extent. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned American pop culture because at, you know, the show was supposed to be, it was designed around wagon train to the stars. Yeah, that's right. So Westerns were big and sci-fi was a difficult idea to propose to a, a network, but we're in the middle of the cold war and white hats and black hats. I can see how Westerns and the way Star Trek, Star Trek's original morality, the way it worked. You have America seeing itself as the goodies and Russia as the baddies and then saying, well, Earth as the goodies and, you know, certain aliens as the baddies. Just that idea of white hats and black hats is part of the DNA of the show. I say that, but, you know, they had a Chekhov on the show as a way of saying that even this conflict that we're having right now will one day be resolved. So there's the hope that you're looking for in Star Trek. Right, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess as, as a, um, a person who can be occasionally skeptical of things of that nature, uh, you know, one of the things that jumps out at me, as you mentioned, Chekhov, you know, Chekhov assimilated into what I would say is a pretty Americanized society. So while that scenario was resolved, the victor is not unclear. <laughs> the minority character uh, in Chekhov you know, he's very much a minority. He's, as near as I can tell, he's the only Russian that we see on the show until Worf's parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. I, yeah, maybe. You know, they're not clearly a big portion <laughs> of Federation society. It was pretty clear having him there. Yes, it's optimistic. But the cynical side of that is that uh, it's optimistic, but we know we won, so it's cool. Everything's fine. That <laughs> um, may be one of the reasons that I framed this as a uh, discussion on imperialism, because both shows do this. Uh, yes. You know, the, the Star Trek is very Americanized, and humanity is very American, despite having people from other countries very often in the casts. 
and and, then, right. and Doctor Who, the entire universe, right up to the the, the year five trillion, is very British. <laughs> oh, very British. Yeah. What's interesting to me about modern Doctor Who uh, in that respect is that it it represents a a more accurate idea of what Great Britain is um, mm. than it certainly did in the eighties. You know, when everybody, you know, every person that you encountered, unless it was like Savlon Glitz, had that like posh. BBC accent, whereas now, you know, you get people from, from all different walks of life. Uh, I think the one that I'm thinking of was the episode with the star whale. Liz 10 mm-hmm. jumps out at me as somebody that that character felt very British to me while not looking like uh, what a descendant of Elizabeth might have looked like in the 1970s of Doctor Who. Or speaking like her, for that matter. Or, yeah, or speaking like her. And, and you know, Doctor Who has this very deft way of using accent to ground a character in, in an idea, in, in a way that, I mean, I think American shows do that to a certain extent. We have a less... Uh, Americans are going to hate me for this, but we have a, 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 a far less diverse collection of accents, I think, than the UK does, or, or at the very least definitions of what those accents mean. And that may be an outsider's view as well. Yeah, I, I say that because, you know, up until, I don't know, the early 2000s, if you saw an American on a British TV show, they invariably had a bad Southern accent because it was a Brit trying to do a Southern accent. Yeah. Um, it's easier to do, I have to say. It's easier is to it? do a bad, well, a, I mean, an indeterminate uh, Southern accent is a lot easier uh-huh. to do than uh, just a straight, you know, like a more Northern kind of accent. So right. I can fall into that as well. <laughs> it's just, it's, it makes your accent disappear. It's it, true. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, when I speak, I don't have any discernible accent, like you couldn't place me, which is unusual because I, I live in a place where the accent is quite pronounced and quite recognizable. You know, I live in Maine. We have a very recognizable accent here. We have several, to be honest. Yeah, that's one of those accents that nobody ever attempts, because if they do, um, they end up sounding like Tom Bosley on Murder, She Wrote, and it's a horrible (laughs) atrocity. So, but yeah, exactly. I think current Doctor Who uh, and, and maybe even new Star Trek will explore a greater swath of our general public, that could just be a change in the, the general population's um, desire for that, too. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to say, but... Yeah. Well, uh, we just haven't had a, uh, a Star Trek show that, you know, was made in the mid mid to late 2000s and beyond. So that's right. Know, things have changed a lot since uh, Enterprise ended. That's right. Yeah, things have changed a lot. Yeah, we expect a very different thing from our entertainment now than perhaps we did once upon a time. What's the plan, then? Are you going to do a scan for alien tech or something? Rose, it hit the middle of London with a very loud bang. I'm going to ask. Not very Spock, is it? Just asking. Give me some Spock for once. Would it kill you? Out of the chair. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about professionalism versus amateurism. Because Star Trek is obviously a professional show. I don't mean that it looks more professional than Doctor Who, though it often has. (laughs) True. Yeah, the money behind it. But uh, it is about experts, specialists in outer space working together as a unit. And, well, I say unit. That's a good example uh, to bring in. (laughs) It is a good example, yeah. Yeah, to bring in in Doctor Who. Even unit seems very amateurish to me because the show is basically about amateurs, people who are not trained to go into time or space. 
the doctor has his training, but we are told consistently that he kind of flunked the academy and doesn't know really how to control his machine. And, you know, so it's about amateurs uh, going out there and doing things. And uh, it's less about exploration and more about wide-eyed wonder, in a sense, about discovering the universe rather than exploring it. People in, in uh, Doctor Who are not on a mission. They're just experiencing the universe as the TARDIS presents it. That's right. Uh, and, yeah. and getting into scrapes. And what do you think of this uh, particular uh, contrast? Well, I mean, I think it could be the definitive contrast between the two shows. L literally, uh, Doctor Who is, uh, as you were saying, like somebody who just sort of a madman in a box. He, he stole his spaceship and he, you know, stumbles around the universe really more at the behest of the ship, really, even than himself, which is, you know, it's a through line through the show. It's a constant joke in the 80s that, you know, he didn't really know how to pilot the TARDIS. And now in the new episodes of the, of the series, we learn that the TARDIS kind of pilots itself. And the Doctor just kind of, you know, they have a sort of symbiotic relationship and understand what each other needs and wants. And literally the viewer's waypoint into the show are these people who occasionally are just sort of bumbling idiots who step into this box on accident or because they're in a situation at any given point like uh the the sort of primary example that 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 springs to mind is is tegan uh she was just changing her tire hmm. she had no wish or desire to be traveling about the universe you know that was not her goal she just accidentally ended up there rose is another great example she just happened to get caught up in an adventure she just happened to be in the wrong shop at the wrong time or the right time depending on your perspective uh, both on rose and on the lifestyle of traveling around in the tardis whereas star trek you have to make that choice and there are layers of that choice that that are played throughout the series like uh, spock for instance you know not only did he not choose uh, a certain way of life that is typical for his species but he chose to go into this regimented starfleet existence and you know the the point one would think of starfleet is to craft the best starfleet officers that they can they want every starfleet officer to be a picard they want every starfleet officer to be a spock i would say more likely than a kirk kirk is kind of problematic for starfleet as often as he's anything. Um, and it's that problematic relationship that makes him the hero all the time. Um, shades of Doctor Who. And, um, you know, so, I mean, the, the, the very idea of Starfleet, and as a result, the very idea of the show is to show what this rigorous dedication to an organization can mean in the scope of the, you know, well, the universe, because it's, or the galaxy, I guess, in Star Trek, they don't really, uh, no, it's pretty much just the, the one galaxy. Uh, they don't really get out into the wider universe unless they're going to look for God or something in one of the movies. But uh, I would say if of the ideas that we're discussing, if there is a single conflict, that amateurism versus professionalism, I think it's the most well-defined conflict between the two series. You were saying earlier that Star Trek was born out of, or from a generation that came back from the war and had a nostalgia for the military. And that's reflected in the show. I'd say the same thing about the British and Doctor Who in this particular instance. Because the post-war Brit, they were 
Uh, unlike the Americans, you know, barring Hawaii, th- there was no fighting on the American territory in World War II. Right. The opposite is, of course, true in uh, Britain. Th- there was no fighting on the ground, but they had the Blitz, and they were under threat, and they were under attack, and, you know, they were in the war very much earlier on and lost a lot of people. That's right. The spirit of amateurism uh, in Britain is kind of an outgrowth of that, where Uh, you know, everybody has a guard. Everybody's tooling around in the shed. Everybody's a little bit of a techie. Everybody's a, and that may be from the post-war era. They have to rebuild London. They've lost a lot of men. They've lost a lot of people, and everybody's going to have to do their share. And that whole idea of you know of, of rationing and all of that seems to to point towards a more you know even unit seems to be like the, the sweater army kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Dad's army, yeah. Yeah, their <laughs> HQ is usually some some castle somewhere, some mansion somewhere <laughs> that's been appropriated. Right. That's that feels very wartime. Uh that feels right. very World War II as a concept. The the doctor is the same. He's good at everything. I'm not saying Star Trek doesn't have its renaissance uh, men and women, which it definitely does, but the doctor's just good at everything. And then his companions might be good at nothing. <laughs> uh, which is frequently the case yes. <laughs> and so they have to make do and just like like a certain generation of brits had to make do, they had you know they had rationing after the war for a long time as well so it's not just a wartime thing it was like a 50s thing and uh, by the 70s which was like the, a major era for doctor who for you know a very popular era for Doctor Who, they had problems with power production. You see that in the the stories where they're, you know, Britain's always trying to find that ex power source. So rationing, making do, that's that's part and parcel of amateurism, that anyone really has to just roll their sleeves up and, and do it, even though they might not be equipped for it. I think that maybe that part of Doctor Who is as generational as the nostalgia for the military that uh, Star Trek exhibits. Maybe. I can absolutely see that. Like, I, I think that that's a, that's a great observation. And, and while you were talking about that, like, the phrase that sort of popped into my mind was the sort of DIY ethic of, like, the punks in the, you know, early 70s through through into the early 80s. You know, that idea that you can do a thing because you've chosen to do that thing and you have the resources to do it in your own way, regardless of how you are set up for those resources. And Doctor Who, visually, <laughs> is very much like that. You know, they're like, well, we need, you know... Um, We need a, a giant monster. Well, let's go to the hardware store and we will have a giant monster, you know, with some paint and some tubing. And that idea like trickles down into the production. And, and I, I just wonder if that result, that idea that that, you know, doesn't even start before the Second World War, you know, when a huge proportion of Britain's young men died in the First World War. And after that, you start to really see sort of the end of the Downton Abbey era, you know, the rise of the commoner and the, and the decline of the uh, aristocracy. And, you know, a lot of times the people seem to want to have X, Y, and Z, and they had to make that happen on their own. You know, doing things on your own was a very real part of the British experience, I think, starting at the end of the, the First World War and, you know, continuing on, at least in, in the histories of that era that I've read, that is a huge deal. And, and by the time the punk music scene explodes, I mean, you're talking about a generation of, of kids who have basically been taught that ethic 
and, you know, uh, then you get the Sex Pistols for good or ill. And, you know, the idea that you can do it on your own, like, that's a powerful idea. There's a reason why punk music changed the world. You know, there's a, a reason why that kind of idea sits in people's brain. Like, no, nah, I can do this. I got this. And, uh, and Doctor Who definitely represents that. I think that that's an excellent observation. I think it's also another part of the NT establishment feeling of it where you might have Star Trek might represent some sort of American exceptionalism. You know, Doctor Who says you don't need to be an expert and, it's, you know, screw your rules that only. Exactly. <laughs> I don't need to be licensed to, to drive a TARDIS. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, Doctor Who is the equivalent of watching YouTube videos to, to fix your hot water heater. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that whole idea that I guess I got this because I have to. Because if I don't, you know, the resources aren't there to make it happen properly. So, And with Star Trek, too, you, you get this idea that you really do need that, you know, and, and I think it's a valid one. It's not to say that the only idea is that you should just grab your own blue box and go through the universe, but that you benefit greatly and you, by standing on the shoulders of the people that came before you, then that's reflected throughout Star Trek. You know, I mean, the, to me, the idea of calling the new Star Trek series the next generation was a, kind of a, a philosophical note as well as just a fun name, um, you know, because they literally said, all right, well, this is what that original crew did. We're going to take that and we're going to elevate that. We're going to stand on their shoulders and we're going to reach further into the universe. We're going to be more uh, socially aware. We're going to be even better more primey at the prime directive. You know what I mean? Like they really just took that idea of each person comes, learns from the people ahead of them and then surpasses them, which I think, you know, in a generous read, and not even necessarily being that generous, but I think that's a, a real idea behind that kind of, that kind of philosophy that you, you know, you enter into a system, you learn from that system, um, and you advance that system. And I think that, you know, Star Trek is, you know, firmly on that front. And uh, I think that it's also one of the things that's quite charming about the show because you, by the time it, 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 you know, once they decide to stop, you know, making every new show a prequel, um, you'll get to see <laughs> the advancement of those ideas and where they go. And, you know, you can sit back and, you know, you can watch Spock show up in Next Generation and, and see the history that it creates. And it, it creates this, you know, this, this beautiful, cultural idea around the show that everything is going to be okay because you have the best people working to make it okay. And I, I think that that's kind of wonderful. You mentioned the Prime Directive. That's going to send us into our third topic, and that's non-interference versus interventionism. The Prime Directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy, and a very correct one. History has proved again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. It's hard to be philosophical when faced with suffering. There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things, things which act against everything that we believe in. They must be fought. Here, I mean, it's a very clear comparison or contrast because Star Trek has the prime directive. They live by it, although a lot of characters have broken it. 
uh, or at least uh, you know bended it. But right. the Prime Directive says, or the Federation ideal says, that uh, thou shalt not interfere with other cultures. Sometimes that's not a problem because they're all on the same level. They're all warp capable and all that. You know, sometimes it's, it creates a real moral dilemma, which is at the core of, of Star Trek. Doctor Who, on the other hand, rarely asks this question. He did originally. <laughs> I mean, the, the very first episodes... It was important not to mess with history right. originally. Today, it doesn't seem to be much of a problem. Seems to be the point, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, but the first Doctor, you know, had said, you know, you, you can't change history, not one line. When Barbara tried in the Aztecs, where he said that line, uh, when Barbara kind of tried, she failed. Because either history keeps itself on track, or it's the philosophy behind the show keeps it from happening. And yet the doctor intervenes all the time in somebody's history. You know, maybe the problem is you don't mess with your own history. And yet, you know, if you could go to your future, that won't mess with your timeline. That's fine. In any case, Doctor Who is about interventionism. Here, I think, again, we can contrast the two countries because it's always a reaction to colonialism. On the one hand, you've got the UK and Doctor Who, which a country that colonized have the planet. The doctor seems to be acting out of the national guilt sort of thing, but he's also intervening. So you go to another country, you sort of take over and he does take over. You change the status quo, you 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 know, you impose your own moral code, whatever it is. And that's that's the British colonialism. Whereas Star Trek is from the, the US and the US rejected colonialism. Not that it doesn't have its own colonies, so to speak, but its birth, which we're celebrating today on, on the release of this episode, its birth was being a colony and rejecting the idea of being a colony. So it is, it's like out of a willful, you know, telling others not to intervene is basically how the country was born. Right, well, taxation without representation. Yes, Star Trek is a, an American ideal. It would be more skittish about intervening in other cultures, just as it doesn't want people to intervene it in its own. Does that does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. I, I mean, it's you know the the sort of the I guess the American archetype, if we have one, uh, well, which I think we do. That's it's fair to say we do. I think the American archetype is is that of the rugged individualist. You know, the person who is on their own making their own choices for good or ill, uh, and hopefully advancing the cause of America, I guess, uh, f through those actions. The inverse of that is that also means that you don't involve yourself in that person's choices, that they are making them, they are theirs, they will partake in the, the winnings of that, of those choices, but at the same time, they will also, you know, deal with the consequences of them. And I think that that is very much an American idea. I think that in my own personal biases sort of forced me to look sort of nostalgically on that idea, like that that is, you know, one of the legs of the stool that keeps America standing, you know, in, in a certain respect. And other countries maybe don't have as strong a history with that as we do. And I think that in, in many ways, the prime directive is sort of a reflection of that. Like, well, we wouldn't want anybody bothering us. We didn't want the Vulcans landing here, directing our society 200 years before we had the capacity to understand them. And that is sort of sort of a big deal you know from a from a point of view of an american show and, and as a result you know i think that that's the idea when you go out into the universe and you see these places that aren't ready to deal with you on your 
level, you just kind of leave them be, or at least you're supposed to. I think that that's the idea. I think the reality of it is very much like the reality of it in America, uh, that that is not the case just as often as it is the case. And there is an awful lot of film on Star Trek that is is based around the idea of saving them from themselves. And I think that that's not, you know, obviously... That's not a uniquely American idea. I think that's a big piece of of Doctor Who. In fact, uh, you know, I think in in this respect, they, not only do they contrast, but they also compare. Uh, you know, Doctor Who and British colonialism is often couched in the idea of saving a group of people from their own poor judgment or their own primitivism or primitivism yeah their own genetic failings <laughs> you know there's a definitely a savior mentality i think in much of british history or at the very least uh, that is the philosophy that grabbed the british people whether it uh, was the reason you know colonialism happened or not i'm sure it wasn't i'm sure it was resources but you know the hearts and minds of the british people were probably not overly concerned with the sources of those resources they were more you know concerned with making sure that you know humanity was being treated humanely and that kind of thing in within their limited scope um of course we're talking about you know several hundred years of that definition of you know humanity changes over the course of 3 centuries but um you know i think that when you look at uh, the prime directive and the idea that you shouldn't intervene, but then doing it anyway, I think that that's part and parcel to the Star Trek experience. And also, uh, you know, just point out that like both Doctor Who, I, I mean, I can remember as a child, I, I have, a, I don't know that it's a specific memory, but this idea that time had laws and that the doctor couldn't contravene those laws except for when he did and frequently that was a very dramatic moment in the show in the series or when he was given the okay to by the time lords um, or when the time lords did it just irrespective of, of his wishes that idea that there is a, a rule that there is a governing principle in either time or space travel creates just a heck of a lot of drama you know and, and conflict and and that's uh, necessary, you know, from a storytelling perspective, but also socially and, and philosophically, I think it's interesting how each of those shows choose to come down on the side, on that conflict in various places. And I think both shows are at their best when they respect the guidelines that they've established. You know, I think to go back to the Aztecs, that is great because Barbara fails. You know, that that has real drama. That moment is one of those things where, you know, it sort of puts you in, in your perspective as a viewer, but also as a citizen living in those universes. Like that's, you know, when I watch a show, I'm inhabiting a place in that that show's universe. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, this is what it would feel like. This is how I would feel in this situation. And I think when those shows respect the prime directive and when they respect the, the rules of time, you know, and, and, you know, the fixed points and those things, um, or when they 
they don't respect them and it goes horrifically askew. Um, I find that those are the most dramatic moments. Well, when there's a consequence and when, uh, you know, when there's some hand wringing about breaking a rule, that's a moral dilemma. When uh, it just right. happens and there's no consequence, that's just, it's just hypocrisy on the part of the characters. So you try to avoid that. Obviously, even if the United States were born out of, you know, let's no longer want to be a colony and we don't want to intervene, they still, after that date, still did some pretty uh, horrific things to the natives. And, uh, you know, they colonized the rest of the states, shirking off the, the chains of empire and becoming an empire themselves. So both these shows are from countries that did that and have that innate irony, I guess. There's there's something I like to call the chair agenda, something I coined for Doctor Who last year uh, with the, the last series with Clara, where somebody kind of mentioned it and it started to become a joke in fandom uh, because there was that that one chair on Scarrow that was hard to track down so the doctor could sit. Oh, right. <laughs> Obviously, the Daleks don't need to sit uh, or, right. or, or always sitting, depending on how you see it. And I started to see the there was like a connection. The more the series went, the more there were times when there was a chair or times when people decided not to sit or times when... Anyway, there was a theme there. And the theme is that Doctor Who is not about sitting. It's about running. It's about standing up and running. That's part of that interventionism is that the show is so active and there's right. no there's no time to think or uh, angst about decisions. We have to move and we have to move now. And the, the truth of it is that the TARDIS has no chairs. It's, it needs six pilots. None of none of them have chairs. Uh, right. And Bill even calls that out in uh, this. That's right. Yeah. And and it wasn't really until she called that out. And I was like, well, yeah, that is sort of a design flaw. What are those chairs there for? Yeah. So the chair, the people are, who are in chairs are like Davros sits in a chair. And those uh, the villains sit in chairs. And when That's you, right. And when you stand up. That's when you have to take a, a heroic action, make decisions that have impact and thus call to your innate heroism. That whole thing with the two boxes, the Zygons and the two boxes, that is a standing scene where the Clara Zygon, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it because that, that is rather more recent than some of the Star Trek episodes we talk about. But the fact that <laughs> the, the character is Bonnie is forced to stand to make her choice turns her into a potential hero. And there's a lot of that going on in Doctor Who. And then I looked at Star Trek where everybody wants to sit in that chair. That's right. You know, and there's a lot of, especially about even in the old, the, the uh, original series, people sitting at conference tables discussing the dilemma, working out oh, plans, yeah. and the captain's sitting on that throne of sorts. And there's something about sitting, status quo, not interfering, and then running around, intervening, perhaps almost on accident, of the two shows. There's a different energy there that kind of thematically speaks to the idea of interfering or not. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that that is... 100% accurate. Uh, in Star Trek, it is all about the chair. It is all about the stability of sitting, of there being a, a stable, you know, grown-ups are talking kind of moment. You know somebody with an officially dictated capacity to resolve an issue is doing so. Um, and that is comforting, I think. The idea that the people in charge are ethical, moral, 
you know, humans and also a part of that stability, that structure, which is ultimately the point of structure is to add stability. You know, I think that that's an excellent observation. Like that is very much the idea of Star Trek sitting <laughs> like every episode ends with Kirk sitting. You know, everything's fine now. We can all sit down. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the few trailers we got for Discovery. It was just showing the chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that iconography couldn't be, yeah, couldn't be plainer, yeah. Stability is the correct word. I think you, you have it. It's stability versus what, well, the Doctor's chaos, isn't he? You know, a very different feeling to the energy of these shows. So let's talk about how each one might have influenced the other. Has it in any way? Well, we know it has, but <laughs> it certainly has. Yeah, it, it certainly has. I mean, at least in the original series, I, I don't imagine there's much carryover from Doctor Who to Star Trek. But I, I mean, I think because Doctor Who had a much longer life in new production than Star Trek did, you start to see those once you get, I mean, obviously I would say Pertwee's era is more influenced by James Bond than anything. Mm-hmm. That's well-trod ground. But at the same time, once you start seeing you know, the alien species, There, there's a slight Star Trek feel to the ships. You know, visually, I think Star Trek, which is funny to say when you think of some of the visual effects from Star Trek, but I think visually Star Trek was the, for a while, the sort of gold standard of science fiction television look. And I think eventually, especially when you start getting into the Peter Davison era where everything was white and clean and, you know, most of the, the alien races, uh, if they were in spaceships or space stations or what have you, they were all very streamlined and, and very shiny. Um, I think that that's definitely, at least visually, uh, a cue from Star Trek. Until Doctor Who became a global phenomenon to anything more than um, hardcore nerds. <laughs> I'm not sure we would see much carryover from Doctor Who over to Star Trek. Star Trek was kind of its own thing, but the thing that sticks out in my mind was, uh, and this is probably entirely my own perception, but was the opening credits to Sylvester McCoy's era of Doctor Who, and even some of the attempts at more special special effects. You know, there was a real feel like they were trying to compete with an American science fiction idea. If you're talking about an American science fiction idea, it's it's, uh, Star Trek. That is our science fiction. A case could be made that a lot of that, especially post-1977, is more like a Star Wars fever, probably. I I think that's a great argument as well. But Star Wars isn't on a television budget, so what is? You look to Star Trek for ideas that are actually doable. You know, when Star Trek came back in the motion picture, you know, that came back because of, you know, Star Wars. Uh, It really kind of got that whole mojo working again. You know, Star Wars did uh, wonderful things for science fiction at a time when maybe it was becoming a little less uh, commonplace or or a little less uh, available. But philosophically, you know, I think that there's a lot of comparisons that could be made. There are Doctor Who characters in Star Trek, you know, like by that I mean characters who are sometimes like the Doctor. I don't know. I have to think that, you know, especially as we get to Deep Space Nine, I know that the writing crew of Deep Space Nine watched Doctor Who. Yeah, just like the the production people on TNG uh, certainly did, because there are like, uh, remember the episode The Neutral Zone? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. So they defrost these people from the 21st century, and uh, one of them, the woman, 
is looking for her descendants to see if she has, still has family. And they, they light up a screen where you see her descendants, and her descendants are William Hartnell and so on, through to Colin Baker. That's been removed from the Blu-ray because uh, it's too clearly visible. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But obviously, there are a lot of little, just like winks from the production staff for Doctor Who and Buckaroo Banzai and everything else that they liked. We are Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. You shall be us. The, the Borg have a very definite origin in the Cybermen. And I have to wonder if if it's a coincidence that the first episode they, they appear in is called Q-Who. You know? Oh. That's kind of... Huh. Is that connected or is just a coincidence? It might be. Well, I was going to... When I was talking about characters that were the Doctor, Q was who I was thinking mm-hmm. of. Okay. You know, to me, he is... I mean, he's an agent of chaos. He seems to have, you know, near limitless power to do you know whatever he wants which does which is very often the case with the doctor Hugh does with the snap of the fingers what the doctor does with his sonic screwdriver especially in modern doctor Who. you know he's not relegated to time as a linear concept uh, much like the doctor is not he can appear different he's a member of a of a great society he's flippant and he's obnoxious yeah, and, yeah. exactly yeah and then and then just characteristically he's there to challenge their stability. I mean, he's played as an antagonist, which makes sense in that context, in that he's there to he's there to disrupt their order. But that is very much, in my opinion, you know, what the doctor would do if he were in. Because he wouldn't be showing up, you know, when Picard is saving the day. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't be needed. Picard's got that. He would he would be showing up uh, on some other Federation vessel when they are being corrupt with their power and their authority, and and whether it's through accident or not, you know. And, and uh, the, although Hugh never did that, that I recall, uh, he was never the hero, <laughs> uh, or rarely if he was. You know, it's still that same concept of you know him popping up. So yeah, given that the Borg show up in the Q Who episode, that is a great question. I want to have that question answered. And that episode is about challenging the uh, Starfleet's arrogance. That's right. Oh, you think you know it all, and you uh, you what if you meet a foe that will not even talk to you, and that challenges right. your ideals. And if you look at Q, it's it's a good idea because if you look at Q over across the entire run of Next Gen. I know he's appeared in the other shows, but in Next Gen. The end of that is about saving humanity. Whether we believe it or not, all his appearances are apparently have been part of this test that's never ended and that ends with Picard actually understanding nonlinear time. And you should have gone to Cisco that, you know, he, he got there in one episode. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he helps, he guides Picard to the answer by moving through three different times just like the doctor mm-hmm. could it's like a christmas carol you know one of those things where he the doctor's in and out of your life you know past present future and there q is the hero he's actually the hero he's a he's a jerk about it but he's the hero of that story and because of him the anomaly can be undone that would have destroyed that part of space or made humanity not happen so you know you you got something there that's very much that kind of idea yeah and and i i think that uh the borg i mean you could say that politely say they're inspired by the cybermen but in my opinion they are just basically a blatant ripoff of the cybermen (laughs) that idea 
requires further research, uh, because I think that that culmination of events, it being called Q Who, for starters, it featuring that, you know, very doctor-like character, um, and introducing a very doctor-like monster, or villain, or species, or whatever we're calling them in Star Trek, uh, there's got to be a connection there. That just seems too easy. <laughs> But probably the most Doctor-ish guest star to, to appear on uh, on Next Gen was probably uh, Berlin Goff Rasmussen, played by Matt Frewer, you know, who shows up in a time machine that's bigger on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And he turns out he's kind of faking it, and he's not he's not actually from the future. He's sort of he's in a time machine that he can't control. Uh, is basically right. so that's another very much a Doctor Who idea. So obviously the people who wrote Star Trek had access to Doctor Who in a way that the people who wrote Doctor Who originally did not have access to Star Trek. I know there's like, there's been, I've read discussions and seen interviews, but like uh, in the Peladon stories, there is a federation of planets, which is very much like a Star Trek thing with different people coming together. And, uh, you know, there's first contact with Peladon and uh, are they going to become part of the federation? That's an incredibly Star Trek thing. But uh, the script editor of the time, Terrence Dix, claims that we never saw Star Trek, really, and uh, that's just a coincidence kind of thing. But then how culture sort of seeps into your life and you don't even know where the idea is coming from uh, is a possibility. So I think that's a Star Trek thing. Today we see a lot more in terms of Star Trek references. Like I mentioned the Christmas Carol, but in A Christmas Carol there is a starship. It's white inside and has all those crazy flares from the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. Mm -hmm. It's obviously a reference to that. You know, Rose wants to see more Spock, in other words, more tech or, you know, jumping to scientific conclusions from the Doctor in um, The Empty Child. And now they're referencing Star Trek quite a lot. They're mentioning Star Trek. They're mentioning the holodeck. They're mentioning ideas, I think. So, obviously, Star Trek exists as a program inside the Doctor Who universe. That's right, yeah. We don't know if the opposite is true. (laughs) We don't, no. As near as I can tell, in Star Trek, they don't actually have entertainment that we would recognize, uh, with the exception of reliving Sherlock Holmes novels in the holodeck and uh, playing sports that don't seem to have any real kind of connection to any actual human sport. But <laughs> I think it's a case of Doctor Who takes place very often in our own world with characters from our own world, so they can reference Star Trek because it's a cultural phenomenon and they know about it. In Star Trek, right. these are people that are, who are not in our culture. Uh, even though we recognize them as culture adjacent. They're not in our culture. Doctor Who seems to be part of the the production's culture, and they'll put winks and references and rip th- ideas off. I mean, not unlike... I mean, Doctor Who rips off from everything. It's part of its DNA as well. So it's more about the people who make Star Trek know about Doctor Who. In Doctor Who, the people who live in the Doctor Who universe know about Star Trek. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that Doctor Who has always existed to make you feel like it's happening in your world a little less so in the older episodes in the older series you know now they sort of take pains and and i think that might be a modern phenomenon as well where they take pains to drop in references to things you know that the general populace the pop culture understands i don't think that was a really a big thing maybe for copyright reasons or any any number of other reasons but i mean even just down to the music that they use in doctor who i mean modern doctor who uses the bbc library of music i mean it just it puts songs that we recognize in an episode and uh that grounds it in the now or at the very least in our world whereas star trek yeah is is meant to be 
somewhere else. You know, it's it, uh, some when else. It, it's our future, so we shouldn't recognize things. I, I guess that's one of the major differences between a show that can use time travel and a show that, you know, really within its own rules can, but only in a very narrow sense. But when they have done that, it's been excellent. Like the episode of uh, uh, Deep Space Nine where um, Captain Sisko becomes a science fiction writer in the early 1960s. When they do that, when they use actual pop culture from human history, I think they do a great job of it. Even in the original series, when they did like the, uh, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name uh, of the episode. It's a it's a line from the episode. Uh, you know, it had Vic Tabak in it, and they had the gangsters. A piece of the action. A piece of the action, thank you. You know, in the original series, when they would do that, when they would take those moments in pop culture history and explore them you know frequently it was quite good sometimes you got space hippies sometimes you had kirk falling in love with a native american alien but sometimes you had a piece of the action which i thought was a great episode and i love the space hippies episode okay i always (laughs) i always tell people that i have to well i think we've touched on a lot of the similarities and differences between not only the two shows but the two countries that made them uh so i'm going to wish you a happy or good Fourth of July. Well, thank you very much, uh, and and uh, I'm going to wish you a good Fourth of July as well, because you also get the Fourth of July. Yours just isn't also Independence Day. That's right. I get the date. It's just <laughs> it's just the day, and it's like three days after Canada Day. So I've had my fireworks already. <laughs> you want to pimp any of your uh, projects or appearances on other podcasts? I don't really have any. <laughs> well, you've appeared in uh, at least one uh, Straight Out of Gallifrey. That's right. Yep, I was in Straight Out of Gallifrey, and I'm. Uh, in talks currently with Rob Kelly to maybe do a spot on film and water, hopefully. And, uh, you know, I think yeah, um, I try to pop up a little more here and there, but not a lot of things that you can reference. I uh, do write a blog called The Parthenogenic Man, which is uh, infrequent, but it is about struggles and triumphs with uh, weight loss and body transformation and that kind of thing. I'm not, I don't have a whole lot of projects to throw out there. Well, I'm sort of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have downtime. It's this thing we do. It's called downtime. <laughs> well, thank you, Corey. You've got a choice. You can step into the uh, transporter booth or the TARDIS, but uh, I'll be sticking around to do subspace transmissions. Thanks again for being here. Yeah, for sure. You have a great day, and thanks for including me in this. No problem. It was a, a joy. <laughs> thanks. Subspace transmissions are next after this promo. Ashford, what is straight out of Gallifrey? Straight Out of Gallifrey is a podcast where Josh and I talk about Doctor Who episodes, classic and new, featuring other Time Lords as well as the Doctor. There are other Time Lords? Oh yes. It started all the way back with the first Doctor, William Hartnell. Oh yeah, you told me about that. The Time Meddler. That's correct, Kirsten. Where can I find the episodes? You can always go to straightoutofgallifrey.lipson.com. I don't think I'll remember that. Just add us on Twitter. We are so Gallifrey, like S-O Gallifrey. Twitter feeds move too fast. I always miss stuff. Well, subscribe to us on iTunes. That way, every time we upload a new episode, you will get the alert on your smarty device. Cool. Thanks. I can't wait to listen. Okay, Kirsten. See you later. Why are you walking into that blue box? I'm going to have a couple of drinks with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. See ya. (laughs) You always say that. Whoa. It is real. So he does have drinks with Mother Teresa of Calcutta.
All right, subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, we have a date for the first episode of Discovery. It will be Sunday, September 24th on CBS at 8.30 p.m. After that wide release episode, the rest will release weekly on CBS's streaming service in the U.S. and on Netflix, apparently, in other countries through November 5th, and then it returns to finish its run in January. Discovery star Soniqua Martin-Green recently revealed that her character, Commander Burnham, is fully human, shutting down speculation that she is a Vulcan-human hybrid. But the character is also the first human to attend the Vulcan Learning Center and subsequently the Vulcan Science Academy. Jonathan Frakes, TNG's Commander Riker, is directing an episode of Discovery. Uh, though originally an actor on TNG, he became one of its most acclaimed directors and would go on not only to direct episodes of later series, but of the best next-gen cast movie as well, First Contact. Uh, he's helming Discovery's third episode, and guess what? He's also directing an episode of Seth MacFarlane's Star Trek spoof, The Orville. So I expect to see that overhead shot from the corner of a room, his trademark. And they don't wait when it comes to tie-in novels. The first Discovery book will be published in September, along with the premiere of the show, written by Kabuki's David Mack. And it's titled Desperate Hours. Mack used the series Bible and the two-part pilot, so that's an extra clue, as a basis for the novel. IDW is also working on a Discovery comic book, which might start coming out in October and is apparently tightly woven into the show's events. It will be written by Mike Johnson and Kirsten Beyer, with art by Tony Chastin. Leftover feedback from episode 9.5 about the trailers for Discovery and the Orville. Craig M. says the Orville feels more like Star Trek to me than Star Trek Discovery does. Discovery seems very bleak and grim. The Orville, and yes, some of the jokes don't land, seems a lot more fun and optimistic. Seth MacFarlane has said that this is not really a comedy, though it does have some jokes, but he's aiming for a more thoughtful sci-fi show that he feels has been missing from television for years. I'll watch Discovery just because it's Star Trek, but right now the one I'm looking forward to the most is The Orville. Hmm, the trailer really does seem like uh, it's going to be a comedy, but if it strikes the right balance, it might be... Um you know, what Chuck is to spy shows, the Orville is to Star Trek. Now on to your feedback about episode 10, rating Star Trek's Utopia. Uh, Rob Kelly from uh, the Fire and Water Podcast Network says, Interesting discussion, and I'm guessing inadvertently timely as well, coming as it does just a few days after the U.S. president pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. It is this kind of abject terror and pig ignorance overthinking of oneself as anything other than a citizen of a country and nothing else that is the biggest obstacle to achieving the world of Star Trek. Like how sexual identity will have to have been rethought once we interact with aliens, the idea that a dotted line across a map represents much of anything will undergo a rethink too. I watched Trek as a wee kid, and the idea that everyone finally banded together sure seemed like a great idea to me. The one aspect of Trek's future time that wasn't touched upon was in First Contact, where, to my memory, it stated that there was a World War III type event which essentially reset the world, laying the groundwork for a new way of looking at things. I had always thought Trek was more optimistic, and the gleaming, beautiful, high-tech future it proposed was simply a natural evolution, not the result of a catastrophe. Uh, oh well. Uh, Davides Gutierrez answers him, TOS also had the planet under siege, circa 1997, when Khan and his brethren rose to power. 
And Rob answers, right, but I always got the sense the eugenics wars or whatever uh, weren't a worldwide thing, but I'm not an expert on the lore. So Dag responds, it was a worldwide thing, hence their expulsion from Earth on the Botany Bay. But you're right that it wasn't as catastrophic as the events depicted in Encounter at Farpoint and Final Contact. Next, we have Chris Franklin, also from the network, says, I have to admit, sometimes I think that Trek's future in the TNG era is a bit less than desirable because it is so automated and everyone is so bland. A lot of this has to do with Gene Roddenberry's changing philosophies during the interim between TOS and TMP. I recommend everyone watch the Trouble on the Bridge documentary, which focuses on the first few seasons of TNG. Many of the show's creative staff discuss how difficult it was to write a show with very little conflict on Roddenberry's then-new belief system. I've heard a lot of folks say Roddenberry wouldn't care for DS9 and many of the treks that followed, and they are probably right, at least later Roddenberry. David Ace Gutierrez's proper comment is, The reason DS9 worked, and arguably where Voyager dropped the ball, was by having internal struggles in forcing people to work together for a greater good. That's true trek. Next we have Speedball, who uh, is set to guest star on the show, says, As for the economy of the Federation, obviously, they always kept it pretty vague, as designing a functioning utopia is pretty difficult. But what I figured is that in the TOS era, they tried to do away with money entirely, and just provide anything that people needed. Thus Star Trek IV's quote about they still use money when they first arrive in San Francisco. But trying to decide what people needed versus wanted, and where to draw the line, caused problems leading to people like the space hippies taking off for Eden and other issues along those lines. Sometime between the TOS movies and the next-gen era, money was reintroduced as credits, and everyone has a universal basic income, an idea that has been uh, around for some time now, and I believe will catch on as more labor gets automated, that can cover their needs, plus some. But you also can earn additional credits from other endeavors, like running a restaurant, joining Starfleet, becoming a writer, or whatever else interests you. Those credits are exchangeable with other cultures, like the Ferengi, that still have a purely capitalist society, so that you can do business with them to rent hollow suites, bid on items for auction, and the like. There's places where that's contradicted, but they're pretty minor, and unless you're going to say that the Federation only barters with other societies, there has to be some kind of monetary system in order to facilitate trade. This makes sense. At the very least, as soon as you encountered the Ferengi, they would they would create a Bitcoin economy just for these for this purpose. And Dr. G himself, Gautam Shuren, says a couple of comments about ideas you covered in the episode regarding the motivations of the non-Starfleet citizens and apparent lack of money. While they often show a lack of material scarcity in the Star Trek universe, there is no end to the need for human labor. Often we see the need for people to still physically work on technology or construction, albeit with the assistance of advanced technology. Case in point, Data is a unique being in the TNG universe, or Spock dies in the Enterprise reactor doing a job we might expect a robot to do. This need for labor may drive a great deal of the motivation of non-spacefaring Federation citizens, a labor need that is driven by the reward of accomplishment over profit, possibly. As to the concept of lack of money with replicator technology, there is still a physical energy cost to the matter-to-energy conversion. If the energy economy is driven on matter-energy dilithium reactions, then there is some level of energy scarcity in the procurement of dilithium. Though I believe that they have established that dilithium matter-energy conversion is not the only energy game in town. This may necessitate a universal base income for Federation citizens in the form of energy allotment. 
This would give labor the incentive of potential access to greater energy allotment, which would provide greater access to, say, replicator and transporter tech. Cisco mentioned he used his transporter allotments to visit his parents while he was in the academy. That's a great point. Though when I personally heard that, I thought, you know, cadets had a limited amount of shore leave, so to speak, or transporter rations. But your take on it makes sense. Uh, he also says another tradable commodity that seems valued in the Federation is cultural barter. Culture as currency is in many ways the mandate of the Federation as an entity. It isn't just the technical, material, and military value of other civilizations that they value, but the culture itself. We see this in the excitement of many characters on Trek at the idea of trying new food, experiencing new art, or studying other religions. As you reference in the episode, Riker gladly throws himself into the Klingon culture during the officer exchange. Yes, and there's that piece in, I think, Voyager where they trade music, and and it's certainly a great first contact kind of icebreaker. Now on to Facebook likes and shares from Alexander M. Osias, Chris Franklin, Chris Tyler, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, David S. Gutierrez, David Edward Cooper, David Foster, D. Bash, Gautam Shoren of Pulp to Pixels Podcasts, Jack Dower, James Hickson. As this popped up, I'm watching a YouTube video on the economics of Star Trek as prep for teaching economics next year. I asked... How'd we do? And he, re he answered, I'll let you know when I've had a chance to listen and when I've learned something about economics. This has yet to happen, by the way. Jason Pope, Mike Gillis, Mike Zumo, Rob Kelly, Ryan Daly, Shag Matthews, Stephen Bird. On Google, we got plussed by Glenn Walker. On Twitter, retweets and favorites from Ange, Cindy Womack, Comic Reflections, David Is Gutierrez, David Byer Jr., who says he finally got to and through the truly epic episode 8 You know, about four hours of reviews. Film and Water Podcast, Greg A., Justice's First Dawn, Pod Dylan, Ryan Daly, Superman Movie Minute, The Bad Girl Podcast, Treasury Comics, and Trickonomics. Trekbot, we welcome our robot overlords. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Till next time, this is Siskoid once again reminding you to go boldly. Computer, activate the EMH program. Please state the nature of your emergency. <laughs>